Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Berg. <laughs> I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. So, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. We have two very special guests, two returning very special guests. We have the return of Gary and Sophie. Why don't you guys briefly reintroduce yourselves to our audience? Let's start with Sophie. Hi, um, I'm Sophie Beale um, from Bournemouth in the south of um, England. And my background is writer, written freelance articles, um, and I've <laughs> been writing a trilogy for 15 years now. Um, <laughs> as yet unpublished. <laughs> Recently, I've I've put all my editing skills to good use by starting um, Cadence Publishing with a uh, with a friend of mine, Rachel Tienison. So that's who I am. So can Cadence not publish your trilogy? Um, well, I imagine that it'll look very kindly on my trilogy, <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, but it isn't there yet, and I'm really really particular. I I'm particular about our brand. It's about brand integrity, and I don't want. I would prefer not to. I would prefer to spend money and time on a book I don't publish, than um, than publish stuff that lets lets cadence down. I would see myself more as a publisher now than as a, a novelist. And Gary, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm Gary Dolkin. I also live in Bournemouth, about two miles away from Sophie. And we've worked together in various different ways for about the last 10 years, first forming a writing group. And then I work for Sophie with Cadence. And we both write for Writing Magazine, me every month, Sophie occasionally. And yeah, mainly what I do now is is editing mostly for people who are looking to get their book published or ready enough to take to an agent or to self-publish. Wonderful. And so you guys have another, we had you guys on a couple of months ago because you had an article coming up on Save the Cat in Writing UK Magazine. And then we had an excellent discussion out of that. And now you guys have a new article coming out, Organizing Chaos, Turning a Messy Draft into a Publishable Book. So what is your new article? Okay, the, the new article is actually really more of an event at the Bournemouth Writing Festival. And I'm writing an article that ties in with it. Uh, it's just me writing it this time. And it, it's all of it is about, the title is Organising Chaos. And it's about how to get a messy early draft of a novel into a publishable book or manuscript. So yes, yeah, so you sent us a little preview. It sounds absolutely fascinating. So let's talk about let's go ahead and begin with the first thing you're going to be talking about let's talk about isolating your central idea sophie as you've been working on your novels how do you isolate what you're really writing about this is a good question because i started with a big block of a novel which was mainly sort of like anti-autobiographical if that's a thing so i was writing about the exact opposite of me it was somebody who couldn't find happiness in her personal life but was doing very well professionally and i was exactly the opposite <laughs> I had to give up my job because i had four children um, <laughs> um and parenting was had proved incompatible with that so it was mainly, I just, and I'd also grown up reading um, Testament to Friendship and Ten Testament of Youth by Vera Britton. And she talked about collecting anecdotes, collecting jokes and bits of dialogue. So I had no idea about structure when I began. 
oh, no idea about a central idea, no idea about a, a story arc. I've had to learn it and throw out an awful lot. <laughs> yes. An awful lot of junk. In fact, I would say that my junk file is probably twice as big as the words I still have in my novels. One thing I do is when I'm trying to make something shorter, I'll edit and snip a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to make this much shorter. And then I'll just go like, well, this is not like the old days when you had to retype the whole thing. I can say what I do it. So what I do is I save what I'm writing under the name way too short draft. So I'll go like, you know, this is, this is yeah. my life, the way too short draft. And then I'll cut out stuff that I know I really shouldn't cut out and I'll cut out everything I can possibly cut out. And then as soon as I do, of course, it's gone forever. Once I've taken it out, I never miss it. Yeah, I don't know how people did it in the old, olden days before word processors, but it is incredibly useful knowing that you don't have to lose anything. Yes. And so you can tell yourself that you're just sh that you're just saving, just, you know, saving it in a different place and then you'll use it, you'll bring it back later when, when you know what to do with it. When you're decluttering in the decluttering community, which is another... <laughs> <laughs> online community I'm part of. Um, they talk about time. I've been to Sophie's house. She definitely needs that. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they talk about time will tell bins. And I always, I, I, I now start, I now think of my, my, that file, the excised file as my time will tell bin. I can think of maybe, maybe a time or two when I've been like, oh, wait, I don't need to write this. I already wrote it and I cut it out a year ago. And yes. I've, and then I've had to dig through old save versions <laughs> to try to find something is that james have you yes. ever had that uh have you ever had that happen oh yeah i i find myself restoring stuff all the time um i, I think th there's a kind of rhythm to you have you like you you write the the whole thing and you just kind of like you know floridly like going down every avenue and then you kind of like maybe aggressively cut back sometime during the editing process and then when you read it again it's like oh my god the magic is gone like, I, I thought that I was yes. just being really ruthless and killing all my darlings. But, you know, as I've said before, you should be so lucky as to have a darling and it didn't deserve to be killed and it should go back in. And you generate a lot of stuff and then you kind of cut and then you put back in and, and maybe sometimes more stuff gets written. Um, sometimes I look back at old stuff and I realize that, oh, I'm glad that I cut this because I went in a different direction that if if I had kept it in even though it came back in in a different form, if I had kept it in the original form, if I hadn't cut it at first, I wouldn't have like done, I wouldn't have duplicated the labor in which I had done it better because I was approaching it from a different angle, if that makes any sense. Like sometimes yeah. like, oh, I can't find the old thing. I guess I'm just going to have to rewrite it. And the way that I rewrite it is usually better. Yeah, I once I interviewed Christopher Priest and he is very much, he's old school, very much believes that you should write each draft from beginning to end. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that you're really thinking through what you're doing. You're not taking those shortcuts. So that if you have to write it again, then you're thinking about mm -hmm. it again and you're really taking that much more into account. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah it, it seems like the way that you're talking about you approach things, and I think Sophie as well there, is more like a sculpting process. Yes, that definitely. You're, you're honing your way in. And this, I wonder, does this tie in with... There's the sort of writers who are plotters and then there's the pantsers. Could it be that there are the writers who know exactly what they, the core material is, the core idea is at the beginning, and then there are others who are working the way towards finding out what they were writing about? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think so. And also another thing that I do when I'm writing is kind of almost like a lacquering process. Like I will write it out and then I'll go over it again and add or take out details and then go over it again before I, I don't write the whole draft from beginning to end like in one go, like uh, which each chapter I keep going over and over it. And usually like as before I write like a, a, a piece, I will uh, go back like, I don't know, 10 pages, read everything that came up to that and then get momentum and then like start writing again. But as I'm reading those 10 pages before it, I'm kind of adding or fussing with it. And so it feels like I have to go over it again and again with that brush before it feels like something that I would want to show the world. Yeah. I I like the word, instead of pantsing, I like the word discovery draft. Mm. I would say that I th part of my process is to write like a pantser to start off with and bung everything, just create a blob of a story. And then afterwards, after that first draft, go back looking at structure. I spend a lot of time trying to structure a blob. So my New Year's resolution has been to finish my first novel, and I've been supposed to be writing at least five pages a day. And... I'm finding that I am just desperate to finish. I'm just desperate to get to the end of the first draft. I am writing sheer crap <laughs> because I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm not pantsing. I am potting. I have an outline for the book. I am not sticking to it very well. I am moving all around. I found that I can't break down my outline for the book into chapters. Um, I can't say like, okay, this is going to be chapter eight and this is going to be mm -hmm. chapter nine. I have to keep that loose, but... I still have a general list of what are the next 20 things that are going to happen in the general order that are going to happen, but I am massively rearranging it as I'm going along and breaking it up into chapters as I'm going along and doing that. Okay, guys, did we ever actually talk about isolating your central idea? I'm not sure we ever actually- No, I'm sorry. I, just, I, just, <laughs> I basically said I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I think it's really important now <laughs> to have, now I've seen so many other, other people's work, I, I'm really opinionated about <laughs> about isolating yourself. Uh, uh, you, um, I think this is a really good idea. I think it's really important to know the basics, like your main character, their goal, de their desire and their misbelief, or the equivalent. Because I don't think you can drive a story without those things. And I also think you have to have some idea about what direction, they're, what they're going to learn. I mean, you don't want to make the you don't want to superimpose a moral on your story that shouldn't be there but you want to know which direction they're going in are they going to lose their faith or are they going to become an archbishop the question is how do you find that out and is it what point do you find that out and where does it become like you can as matt says you can just write and write and write lots at some point you have to stop and maybe take a step back and look at it a bit more in a bit more of a detached way and say, okay, what is all this about? And then you can yes. come back and write the next draft. I can't talk as a, a great planner, but I think the advantage of being a, a pantser is that it's more organic. The reason I do it is because I feel it's easier for me to find a, a real, somebody who feels like a real human being reacting like a real human being because I've not planned their steps first. I often do what I call an emotional edit where... I make sure that all of their actions make sense, not just as, a, as their character, but like make sense in sequence. You're talking about retroactively isolating your central idea. I mean, I'd say from my point of view as an editor is stepping back and putting on different glasses, looking at it like an editor rather than trying to even pretend you didn't write the thing. Look at it with a new, different perspective. And I know you talked about this recently, so I won't say too much, but just 
distancing yourself from it enough to actually try and understand thematically what it's about, what works about it, what doesn't work, and really just being able to get a more objective view of what mm. this thing is that you've created and where it's going to go. So then you talk about underwriting and overwriting. Talk about yes. underwriting and overwriting. How about you, James? Are you an overwriter or an underwriter? The novels that I write all three times, and even this fourth time, the one I'm working on now, started as a short story, which had the kernel of the idea in it, but not fully developed. And usually I think, oh, it's just, it's just gonna be a short story at the beginning. And then I realize, okay, this is a book. And then I overwrite that book. And then, and then start pruning away at that in that kind of back and forth way. So I guess it starts out with a, in a way, an underwriting, because I'm just writing the kernel of the idea, like in a short story. Um, and then it kind of like blossoms and you prune it back. It's funny. I, with my screenplays, I always overwrote. I always started off with like a 150 page screenplay and then I had to get it down to 120 or 110 or whatever, which was a painful process. With my nonfiction books, I overwrote. The first draft of The Secrets of Story was 600 pages and I did what? make some people read that 600 page draft <laughs> um, and then uh, cut it down. But with my novel, I'm finding that I'm underwriting. It's I'm going to end up with a 125-page first draft, I think. Yes, I'm an underwriter. And so I'm going to have to stretch it out, which <laughs> I don't think is bad. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds like I'm adding fat or something. But it's underwritten. I know as I'm writing each chapter, I'm underwriting yeah. each chapter. And I'm sort of just saying what's happening without having satisfying dialogue. I'm going to have to make it bigger. I naturally underwrite. And I think this is because I've watched too much TV and um, film. So I'm not very good at transitions. <laughs> so one thing that Sophie does that is actually good is she underwrites because she credits the reader with the intelligence to figure out the gaps. Never do that. <laughs> Never credit your reader with intelligence. Yeah. So many writers do tend to over-explain, and it can possibly be a lack of confidence in their own writing, I find, or it can be a lack of confidence in the reader. And sometimes I have to ask Sophie when I'm editing her stuff quite what the connection is. Hmm. If you're watching a film, you would suddenly, you would, you would be able to follow it. But I realised that actually I need to stop. I need to write like a novelist and not hmm. a screenwriter. That may, that may be it. That You maybe have written it like a film. You may have yeah. got the picture. You may have got the visuals in your head, but they're not on the page. And no. so there's, there's something there. It might literally just be one sentence that's missing that enables you to connect everything together. Yes. But having but, said yeah, that, I, mean, I still have a real problem getting a decent length. For instance, at the moment, I am really thrilled because the penultimate draft of the book I've written I, I've, I've last been working on is 70,000 words and that feels almost almost respectable hmm. as a as, as a novel it's officially yes. long enough to be a novel yes yes very good that's what we're all going for almost respectable almost respectable that'll be a great blurb yes okay let's talk about tailoring your creative process to work for you I, I think it depends whether you're right-brained or left-brained I was thinking about this. You know, they say you need right brain drafting and left brain editing. I would say that I have to sometimes stop my left brain working so that my right creative brain will work and solve problems. What is the definition of right brain writing and what is the definition of left brain writing? People talk about right brain and left brain people where, so a left brain person might be more 
analytical, more organised, and a right brain person might be more intuitive and more creative. I personally find that when I'm trying to, I have to turn off my left analytical brain. I have to stop thinking about housework and and my goals in life and getting the dinner. I have to stop that and I have to sort of give myself over to sort of literary abandon, which is why NaNoWriMo works for so many people because they're basically giving themselves permission to throw common sense out of the window and just think creatively, really. That is looking at the, more, the practical side of it, the actual how do you tailor these things in with real life? And that's going to vary from person to person depending on how much work they have or are they working, do they have family, do they have children, all the rest of that. So, yeah, this is going to be different for everyone, but I think it is a thing that certainly writers I've talked to, they haven't really thought too much maybe at the beginning and then realised how long it's going to take and how difficult it can be to negotiate just the practicals of, of daily life in fitting writing around that. Because when you think about it, writing is a pretty weird thing that you've got to go and shut yourself away from all the other people that you live with, probably. And you've somehow got to negotiate with them that they understand you do that. I mean, if you're a professional writer and you're making your money, you're making your living doing that, then they understand that. They understand you've got to go and do this weird thing and just stick it in a room for hours on end. But uh, for someone who isn't at that point where it's actually even bringing in any money, then they've got that sort of that tension and maybe even that guilt that, hang on, I'm doing this thing. Am I just being indulgent? Or is this going to lead to something that's going to benefit the other people who are putting up with this? So, yeah, you've got to take all these things into account to, when you are sort of working out how you're going to do your creative process, negotiating with the family probably, how much time can I have to do this? Are they going to let me, let me have space and in return, what do, I, what do I compromise with them? And, again, I have spoke to writers who've said that there is a sense of guilt sometimes about that they're taking time away from other things in their life. So yeah, yeah, how do you balance these things out? The most amazing book that I read last year was Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. And she grapples a lot with the guilt. She's got an autistic son and she's, you know, taking time away to listen to Steve Bannon's podcast uh, so that she can <laughs> uh, track her suddenly evil doppelganger, Naomi Wolf. It's a great book. I cannot recommend highly enough Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. It's yes. amazing. It is the best book I read last year. So, all right, let's go ahead and move on to planning and organizing your revisions. So this is obviously, this is sort of the heart of today's thing. Well, I was thinking about this um, earlier. Um, I think of it a bit like a Maslow's triangle. You know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need to be safe before you can think about self-actualizing and creating great masterpieces. You need to be fed that the basics are at the bottom of the triangle and then you can add things further up it. And I think that nothing works unless you've got the structure right or and the characterization right. You, the number of things I've tried to solve with prose tweaks, that if only I'd sorted out the structure, that actually when I've finally given up and thrown my toys out of the pram and walked away from it for a while and come back to it. I realise actually the structure's wrong or the, there's something wrong with the character. The character isn't consistent or something like that. So what you're saying is that that should be the first thing that people look at when they're thinking about revising. Make sure you've got the bones right before you start worrying about putting makeup on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some, sometimes I get contacted by someone interested in hiring me and maybe they're thinking that they need proofreading or copy editing and they send me the manuscript and actually I end up talking to them and saying, 
we need to look at the bigger picture here first. There's no point tweaking the commas, as it were, until you've no. got the story right, until you've got the characters right. That there are, because otherwise you're just going to end up rewriting all that stuff anyway. You can have a manuscript full of beautifully written prose where the story just doesn't work for whatever reason. Either the characters behaving inconsistently or the story just has big plot holes in it or whatever. So, yeah, you've got to realize what isn't working first and look at the big picture, get that in place first. And then you gradually, through each successive draft, narrow it down to finer and finer detail. But, yeah, you've got to have the overall picture in place first. Otherwise, you're just going to waste a lot of time. And all that beautiful prose is for naught and will eventually be thrown out. And then you have to redo your prose. James, how often you have good prose, James, you've got nice prose. (laughs) Thank you. How often do you find yourself gutting your carefully crafted prose to deal with structural issues? A lot. I mean, sometimes I have found myself writing something that I think this is so good. I'm going to change the structure to accommodate it. Is that a good idea? It's it's case by case, right? Like, like it's like, like um, I, I think Sorry. that you. I mean, that's part of the discovery of it, right? You, you know, like you you like you're discovering something while you're writing, and while you're writing, it's like, oh my gosh, it it looks so good when I write it like this. You know, maybe you know my structure should accommodate this. You have such pretty prose. You change the structure. I remember when writing the Order of Oddfish, there were like jokes that came to me that like i think this joke is too funny i have i have to keep it in but it doesn't really make sense in the in the the story well how can i change the story to accommodate this joke and and then i I was and then it led me into different directions that i wouldn't have expected before and made the book more unusual and less like standardized feeling i've never heard of anybody i've never heard of anybody doing it that way though that i will you've never met anybody as self-aggrandizing as me (laughs) Next time I think that my only option is to kill a darling, I'll think about you and just restructure my novel. <laughs> if, if you have a darling, protect that darling. Yes. Of course, you can take that darling out and use them somewhere else. That's true. Yeah. Create a whole book around your darling. <laughs> I, I have to, I mean, my first novel, it was like a short story that I had written. And then I started, I said, okay, I think I can turn this into a novel. And I added more and more to the short story until I suddenly realized I didn't like the original short story anymore, but I liked all the stuff that I had added on and all like the, the, the different directions to come yeah. that. So I got rid of the original short story. And then I was just left with all these pieces that I put together in, in a different way. And I think that may be a roundabout way of writing something, but... No, I think it's the, great. Uh, and it, it explains why your books are so creative. Because you're not a slave to rules or... Uh, This goes to the heart of between me and Matt. I need Matt's stuff in a way, and I feel that I need it. uh, But in another way, like I'm pushing back against him. It's the premise of the whole podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you take a book like Dare to Know, that could have so easily gone over the edge in the bad way. because it. it Many people think so. (laughs) I mean, the, the way that that story takes an idea and then spins more ideas out of it and it gets stranger and wilder as it goes on and it extrapolates these ideas in a way that you either go with it or you get left behind but it, it doesn't take any prisoners as it goes along and it, it pushes everything to the to the nth degree and i mean it's a terrific ride but it's a sort of like a high wire balancing act isn't it to to pull that off 
how much interaction did you have with an editor? Was the stuff that your editor was saying, this doesn't work? Or No, they, they got it. I, I said, here it is. And they said, great. Like, like I mean, there, there was no like structural edit from them. And I, I think while I was writing it, I think at certain points I was like, oh, can I get away with this? Is this something you can do? Like, <laughs> and then I was just like, I'm going to like, what's what, what is it? Keats who talks about negative capability. You, you, you just have to have that feeling of just like, well, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but going to proceed as though it will. You just kind of like have to really take up and I and I'm feeling I'm doing that right now with the thing I'm writing right now, just taking like a gigantic leap of faith, faith in one's own abilities, the ability to pull it off. And but I think that's the only way I can write because there's been a couple times and Matt has seen some of my like aborted or like half finished novels that I wasn't able to finish and that's because beforehand I was like I'm going to plot this all out beforehand and I'm going to do this the way you should do it. And then it just kind of grinds to a halt. And I think for me, the only way I can really finish a project is if it feels like I've given myself some kind of dare. Like, can you pull this off? And and then, I mean, it makes it more likely that you're going to fail. But maybe at the end, it makes it more likely that there's be something that's distinctive, even if not everybody is going to go for it. I found the definition of negative capability. It's a writer's ability, says John Keats to accept uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. You just kind of have to live in the mystery and just like let it take you somewhere and kind of just like pick up what you find along the way. It's much in the same way that like Lynch like saw a key grip mistakenly in the mirror. He said, oh, that's going to be the villain. That's Killer Bob. Um, that just came from the there's this guy on set that they saw in a mirror that, that kind of, oh, they ruined the shot. He's like, no, that's going to be the central thing of it. And I think keeping yourself open to those yeah. happy accidents and the, and also just kind of relishing them and seizing them, I think is, for me, the most important part of writing. And also, it's a thing that makes writing fun. Uh, it, it makes it feel like you're you're exploring something and you're not just doing a job. I found with my novel that I'm writing right now, my first novel... I had some ideas about it, and then basically for a year, I was like, oh, that could make a good novel, and I was just sort of thinking about it, but, you know, going like, oh, who am I kidding? I would never write a novel. And then one day, the first sentence occurred to me. I'm like, if I wrote that novel, this would be the first sentence. And then I did something, you know, I started pantsing, which you wouldn't think I would do. I sat down, and I'm like, let me just start writing from that first sentence, and I have absolutely no idea where it's going. And then I found my voice. I was like, oh, that's the voice of this novel. And I kept writing for 15 single space pages. Mm. And then I stopped. And I'm like, I'm like, this could work. This could work as a novel. But I have no idea where I'm going next. The voice can work as a novel, but I don't know if the structure could work as a novel. So then I took about a month off and I started potting out the various separate pot threads separately until each of the pot threads had seven to 10 beats in it. And then I decided to do a weave as uh, I was taught at Columbia. You do the weave where then you weave together all the pot threads into one outline and a very, very loose outline. And some of them were just like, check in on this pot thread here. And that's all it would say. And then I was able to start writing again, very sort of painfully. I was able to go like, all right, <laughs> now it's it was less fun to write now that I had an outline, but I never would have kept going with that one. I had I had reached my end at 15 single space pages. I'd reached my end of pantsing and without a pot, I couldn't keep going. But when I did then keep going, it was less fun, but um, but more productive. And I was actually able to, you know, instead of just sitting down and vomiting out 
15 pages, I was actually able to then write five pages a day, every day, which is what I'm doing now. And I expect to have the novel done by the end of January. I think one thing I picked up from what all three of you have said there is that without your subconscious kickstarting something and just coming up with this stuff that you don't even know where it's coming from, that you're not going to have something that really feels alive and mm. organic and, and has some life in it. But then is what we're talking about. The theme of what we're talking about today is at some point, then you have to sit down and make some sort of sense out of it. Maybe James less than others, because James takes a more sort of surreal track maybe with his work. But if you're having a more, well, with Sophie's work, which is very much set in the real world, then it has got to make sense. So there's a point where you've just got to sit down and say, yeah, we've got to make sense of this and add all the bits and pieces together in a more coherent way. But I think in all cases, you've got to have that inspiration that just comes from somewhere. And it's, if you just sit down and say, I'm going to write a book and you're doing it very consciously from the beginning, you're probably going to have a dead piece of writing. It might be nicely crafted, but there isn't going to be any life in it. Now we get to successful self-editing. Let's talk about self-editing versus, well, you then talk about successful self-editing versus using beta readers and professional editors. So when you talk about professional editors, there's all sorts of things. You can sell your novel to a publisher and then they will assign an editor to you. Or if you're going to self-publish, you have to hire a professional freelance editor, or you can do both. I think there are some people who they've sold their novel to a publisher, but they don't trust the publishing house to give them the amount of editing that they think they require, and they hire a professional editor. I know this is the case because I used to be a freelance editor, and sometimes I would have people come to me who had, who had a publishing contract. And sometimes I would have people come to me who were going to self-publish. And sometimes I'd have people come to me who were hoping to approach agents or publishers with the book and were hoping to get it in better shape. Now, one thing that sometimes people do, and of course you have a problem in that sometimes the agent may say, I recommended an error for this. Here's somebody I know who might be good, but then the writer can go online and go like, oh, this agent is a real agent. There's someone who is going to funnel you to their friends for paid notes yeah and mm -hmm. that could get in trouble sophie what is your as a publisher what is your relationship to freelance editors right we've done it several ways with sold which is the book that we've had the the book our first release sue um our author had had it professionally edited um and spent a lot of money a lot of money getting it professionally edited she'd been through um, a prestigious writing program and yet we still needed when it came to us we still needed to do about a year of work to get it ready for publication now in our naivety because it was our first book we'd thought oh this is great um all we will need to do will be put a cover on it and work out the marketing <laughs> but were we wrong about that and it was things like and i think this is partly because a professional editor, whoever the professional editor is, if they are working for the author, then it's a different relationship than if they're working for a publisher. I mean, I've done some freelance editing as well. And I felt much less pressure because I wasn't responsible for the end product and what she did with my advice. I didn't have... I did have skin in the game. I wanted to do a very good job. But the final result wasn't something that had to be published under cadence so I did a lot to help her get it publishable 
um, to, to make sure it was you know reasonably commercial and she was she was happy but I wouldn't have published that book it wasn't about standard it was just I was tailoring it to suit her needs and not the needs of the publisher whereas when we were doing sold it was really important that we got certain things right we had certain things in our own agenda as publishers one we have hardly any money any money <laughs> it's all it's all the money I've earned from freelance uh, freelance writing basically <laughs> um so it's so uh, we need this book so that we can that uh, this book to sell so that we can then sell the next we don't have a big Ian Rankin or a lead child to support our midlist authors all our authors will be midlist so I needed that book to sell I needed it to get reviews. I needed it to be well reviewed. I needed it when when we knew it would be slow because we had no marketing budget. And whenever you throw Amazon adverts, Amazon just you know swallows money and doesn't actually um, spit any back out. Yes, <laughs> but I knew that if we could get word of mouth out about it, our only real chance was to have an excellent product that people would recommend each other. So this is book where. She had hired freelance editors. They had yeah. edited to within an inch of its life. You were like, great, what a slap cover on it. And then you realized that, wait, this is our one shot with this one book and it desperately needs to be as perfect as possible. And so that was where you stepped in as editor and said, actually, I'm going, this book has already been edited within an inch of its life, but I'm now going to re-edit yes. it within, within a centimeter of its yes. life. And I called it, and eventually it was really, Sue was amazing. She was so patient with me because we had no idea, like an author has no idea how long the editing process is going to be really. I mean, I well, I've never known. You, you, you always find something else. As you tidy a room, you start noticing the dust at the back of the TV. You know, she was incredibly patient with me, but there was so much of the time we were, she was, you know, we had to have the discussion. Well, and what we were all questioning, is this really necessary? Um, and what part of this are you, I want this. <laughs> she would, this would be something that was quite precious to her. And I would say it's not working as well as it, as it could. And she was in, I mean, she, we were friends, writing colleagues and friends beforehand, but we really developed a good relationship, a push and pull relationship where I would be pretty mean and she'd push back <laughs> and I'd go, okay, then about that, but then I'm going to push back about this. And, you know, it would be a bit, a, a lot of push and pull. And eventually we got something we were happy about. Can you give an example of, of, of what you pushed and pulled on? For instance, she had a double climax, which was fine by her previous editor. But it for me, it took away the, the power of the overall story. She got rescued out of her... She was in a, um, a cannabis farm by the end of the book, under threat of death. She was rescued from that. And then there was about... I, I think, if I remember rightly, about 20% of the rest of the book was sorting out her issues with her family and sort of tying off, off ends. Now, that was fine by the previous editor, but because I wanted, as a publisher who wanted to sell the book and wanted to make it as commercial, not, not in a bad way, <laughs> but I wanted it to be commercially viable, I thought, well, you tend to remember how books end. They're not going to have much to talk about if 
all they can remember at the end is is sort of, oh, this happened with her dad and this happened with her friends. And eventually she was so good about it. But we did have robust discussions and I think it's paid off. But we'll never know because we're not going to, we're not going to be stupid enough to publish the unedited version. So no you would one... have gotten rid of the uh, scouring of the Shire in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I am reading... I am reading Lord of the Rings to my son right now, and they Arwen has married off to Aragorn. Everything seems to be wrapped up, and my son is like, how can there be 150 pages left? How can there yes, be 150 yes, pages yes, left? Yes. And I'm like, well, believe it or not, they have to lead a revolution when they go back to the Shire. And uh, my son is not very happy with that. We've been reading these books for long enough. So, Gary, what was your role in this process? Then Sophie sent a copy to me, almost as a courtesy. Yeah, this is important for people to understand. Right. That we'd had, this book yeah. had two full edits, one by the, the original professional editor, to, uh, literally pummeling by me. I had been so mean. It had gone through a proofreader. It had gone through beta readers. And then I sent it to you as a and courtesy, I, basically. And, and you, I started reading you and I was horrified. And you said, do you want me to tell you? Do you because this book was, this book was ready to upload it was up you know it had been uploaded to um the online sites and everything and he said uh do you want do you want me to tell you what if i come what, across problems what's wrong with what, yeah and eventually i got he gave me a full copy edit um which is why he got a christmas cake this, last year um <laughs> as a thank you but yes because there were really embarrassing things like the that most was, embarrassing yeah. when we were going through it and rachel my business partner and i were going through it and i was going oh well people won't notice that people won't notice that oh maybe you can get away with that oh that sort of thing happened and then <laughs> a levels are like our equivalent to the thing you take to get to university and it turned out that, you know, like about two thirds of the way book, through the book, we hadn't noticed and nobody had noticed this, that um, he was take, going to take special A-levels to be a paramedic. Like that just that just doesn't happen. That was so easy. To, that was so easy to sort out. There's no such thing <laughs> thing as an A level to become a paramedic. So I mean, by the point by the time that the book got sent to me, it was details like that. Uh, I didn't have any problems with the story, the structure, or the characters or anything. Just details. Uh, but yes. yeah, it just shows that the more eyes that look through something, yes, you can read things so many that... times that you just don't yeah. see really yeah. obvious problems with it. No, and it's because we were too close to it, mm. and uh, we've had to reprint it. We've had to. Sorry, that's a really high high class problem. But we've just had to. <laughs> it's just gone into reprint. But um, okay. but we had still had things that had been picked up even then that we had to put mm. right before we before it, 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 we sent it to the printers. When someone I mean, publishes a book, I never know whether to tell them if there are errors. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, a, like, that's an interesting topic for a, com, uh, for a podcast, the etiquette of what to tell your friends when you read their books. <laughs> like, there was someone who I actually just grew up next door to, Jane Mount, who has now become a very successful artist and author. And it's funny, she contacted my wife about writing something just as a children's literature expert for her first book and then my wife was like oh look i just got this book i contributed to the mail i'm like i know her i grew up next door to her she i was best friends <laughs> with her brother for a while and uh and then she was like what and so then i contacted jane well i'm facebook friends with her i'm like i'm like did you contact my wife about appearing in your book and did you realize she's my wife and she's like what betsy bird is matt bird's wife and i said yes she is <laughs> and so then we did it but then i was like 
um, Jane, I don't know how to say this, but there's an error in your book, which has been published at this point, but I feel like I should point it out. I don't know. Do you, do you guys, you know, and it's like, well, What's you know, that? not every book gets reprinted, but if you do get reprinted, you, you're going to want to fix this error. You know, and when we read Brock's book, uh, there were um, a few typos in Brock's book because he had self-published it. And we're like, this is this is mainly e-published, self-published. So that was certainly a case, James, where you were, I think we waited until we were done with the podcast. <laughs> and once yes. we were no longer recording, you were like, Brock, there's a few typos in here, you know, if you're e-publishing this. So that was a case. When someone has e-published the book themselves, then I'm more than willing to point out, oh, you might want to fix this typo. When something has been professionally published by a publisher, then I am very reluctant to point out typos. Yeah, and But people have done it with me. Them. People have pointed out errors in my books, and then we have not fixed them for later editions. I have never wanted to bother Penguin Random House about, or my original publisher, Writer's Digest. I never want to bother them about, could we fix this in the next edition? There was one thing where I told a story that I didn't really have permission to tell in Secrets of Character, and that was the one. And then I sort of realized afterwards that it had been a breach of etiquette. And then I thought about asking them to change that in the second, but I don't know if they've even had reprints of Secrets of Character, and I haven't wanted to bug Penguin Random House about that, even though that was somewhat more serious. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, from my point of view, when it, it comes to looking at from, like, with Sold, as an editor's point of view, I was constantly pushing, this has got to be as absolutely good as it possibly can be. And Sophie, I think, agreed with me, and there was a bit of a pushback elsewhere but maybe as you already mentioned that a hey, people aren't going to notice or that's all right we can get by with that and sophie was always saying we want cadence's books to be as good as they possibly can be and she has the ambition that eventually producing award-winning books so i'm constantly pushing everything has got to be absolutely the best that we can do it and it came down to it it worked out in the end i mean the school library service they picked this book from this little tiny little independent publisher in Bournemouth out of hundreds of books that came out last year they picked it as their choice for the whole summer just a recommended book yeah. for 13 to 16 year olds um, my favorite bit though Gary was when did I send you the screenshot of where we're on featured books in the Guardian and it's mm. <laughs> and it was our one book at the time and mm. it says Cadence Publishing in <laughs> in brackets one. <laughs> yeah, just but, making it but, look like it's one of twenty or thirty. No. Or... <laughs> the Guardian did describe it as compulsively readable, harrowing yet hopeful. This young adult debut shines a fierce light into the shadows of child trafficking, and the school's library association described it as this most is this is the most compelling young adult title I've read in a long time. Share this page turn with every young person you know. That's wonderful. That work to get it, that exciting That's ending great. and not 20% of sort of epilogue, that worked because you got a, a really compulsive thriller out of it. I want to like, kind of get specifics. What are the things that you see, the specific, mm. not errors, but like things that authors do that like these are the common ones. And if they just knew these five, then we would be, people would be able to help themselves before an editor had to help them. The biggest one for me is identifying the right place to start, not starting too early so that you're just watching somebody getting out of bed before they start mm -hmm. their day and not starting too late to get into the book so that you're at sea and you're kind of like trying to work out what's going on. I don't think there's any technical way of telling people 
how how to work that out i think that that you have to work you have to that have to feel your way about that what do you think gary as on a smaller scale just inconsistencies that are obvious to anyone just coming at it afresh for instance I edited a novel set in the Great War, the First World War, where a supporting character died twice in successive chapters in different ways. <laughs> How do you I... solve that problem? Uh, just remove one of the deaths. <laughs> um, the other thing I would say is show don't tell makes a massive, or oh, show versus tell, getting the balance of show versus tell makes a massive difference. I doubt anybody else will have read these books. <laughs> but I really enjoyed Bridgerton um, the, 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 uh, on Netflix. So I went to the Bridgerton novels, which um, the woman who, I think it's Julia Quinn, she admits they're not the world, world's best written novels. Um, but I, I, I've also really enjoyed Georgette Hare, who is known as the, you know, the queen of Regency of Romance and her books were like first public. I mean, I think she first started writing in the 1920s and she's been in, you know, she's been published ever since she, you know, she knows what she's doing and the difference, both books, the plots were fun, but actually the difference, the quality was one, you were told what the characters were thinking and in the Georgiette Hare, it was all it was all show, or, or, or generally shown. Sometimes I, th when I'm reading a, a manuscript, I'm thinking this just doesn't feel very. It feels a bit cringy, or it feels it just doesn't feel. It feels a bit amateur, and it's it's generally because people have haven't got the show versus tell right. I think often that seems to me to come come to a lack of confidence on the part of the author that they feel they have to explain everything, and they're not trusting the the reader to actually understand what's happening by describing what's happening. Uh, and again, what I said earlier, what Sophie is good at doing this is maybe she goes too far in underwriting. She expects us to figure out everything. I find it with my book that um, with the novel I'm writing now is that when I'm just writing my vomit draft, I'm just telling, telling, telling. And then I have to force myself to slow down and show and, you know, actually have dialogue scenes because it's a memoir based novel and I don't actually remember, you know, I remember the story well enough to tell it, but I don't remember the story. All the dialogues essentially invented. I have a terrible memory, which makes me the worst person to be writing this book, but, <laughs> but I am trained. I am a trained dialogue writer. I was a working screenwriter. I can write the dialogue, but all the dialogue feels very false and invented for me right now because it is false and invented as opposed to when I just tell the story, which is true. And I'm trying to be as true as I possibly can, which is one reason why the first draft is mainly tell. And the second draft, which will be the fictionalized draft, will be trying to replace as much of that tell with show as possible. Yes. It's funny, one thing that you were talking about, like, oh, you can't take A-levels to be a paramedic. And you were afraid people would call you on that. One of the things I'm going as I'm doing this is like, I'm writing about my senior year in high school and... I keep moving around where I get my SAT results. And I'm like, <laughs> but aren't people going to say, like, that's not when you get your SAT results. You know, you can't move that past December. You don't get your SAT results in December of your senior year. And I'm like, do I care? Do I care that people are going to say that? Or, you know, is that, or can I just say like, oh, that's the way it was back in 1992. You don't remember. Yes. <laughs> I don't know the degree to which I'm going to get called on 
that's not the way the world works questions. I, I, yeah. one I think, of my 122 questions is, does this reflect the way the world works? But I don't know what I'm allowed to get away with. I think that's something that you should take the time to get right. And if only because it sometimes forces an opportunity, like I, I, the book that I'm writing right now, there's a scene that happens. And in the timeline, uh, in December 7th, 1962 the main character is in eugene oregon and they go to see a movie and i asked my wife who is a reference librarian at this theater in eugene oregon what was playing that night and what time and she found out because she's a good reference librarian it was um the war lover with steve mcqueen and i was like oh steve mcqueen that totally plays into something that i want to do uh it with the book and 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 so it, it gave me all these opportunities because i forced myself to have fidelity to the facts of what was playing at that theater. Uh, and so I think that you should really try to find out what is the date that that I'll happened, because it yeah. might open up uh, uh, like you could say, Oh, what else happened on the day? Oh my gosh. In 1992, the day the SAT results came out was also the same day that some specific thing happened. And then you can combine those and you might discover something that, you know, that will uh, open something up to you. No, well, I, you know, part of the book is about being a member of the Socialist Workers Party, and I have all of the newspapers are online, and I can go like, okay, on the day I would have went to that meeting, what would we have been discussing? I can look at their newspaper that was published on that date, and I do find that very useful. I do find that to be wonderful, to be able to go like, okay, what would we have been discussing? And then I was like, oh, and then I can see how learning that affected this other storyline. It is absolutely fascinating. But like at one point, part of it is I'm just terrible at research. And, you know, my wife is also a librarian and should be able to help me with these things. But at one point I went and I heard Nelson Mandela speak in 1992 uh, when he was passing through town. And obviously that happened on a very specific date. Nelson Mandela only spoke in Atlanta, Georgia on one date in 1992. And I'm like, should I try to nail that down? Or should I move it around to the place where it works best in the book? Again, is anybody going to call me on it? I just don't know. Yeah, you should definitely do the correct date because it, uh, after enough of those things pile up, yeah, somebody's going to notice. And when they notice one, they're going to they're gonna say, well, what about the rest of it? And they lose faith in the rest of it. Yeah. Um, the people who are going to be interested in reading it, a lot of them are people from Atlanta who are alive during that time. And if they're like, wait a second, and if as soon as you, you don't want to ever break that faith, and it's such an easy thing to get right, uh, that, I, yeah, I. I mean, this is something I have a lot of conversations with with different uh, clients of mine, and the conversation often goes along the lines of just how authentic do you want this to be, and where mm -hmm. I, where is the line that you're prepared to take with what liberties you're allowing yourself I, I mean if you're going to publish something as a true story then does it have to be absolutely 100 percent factually accurate i would say it does and if you're saying it's based on real events then i think you've got a lot more leeway to shift around minor background details to suit your story and you can cover an awful lot with an author's note you yes. can have a note at the beginning and you can say that this is based on and but i have shifted around a few minor details to make the story work yeah. And nobody's going to call you out on that. Like with your movie theatre, especially in older times, films would play for years after their original release. I mean, in small towns, they might be showing two, three, four years later, they kept get reissued. It really doesn't matter if a film from 1961 is playing in a, in a cinema in 1963, because that would have just happened. So you can pick the mm -hmm. film that's most symbolically relevant to your storyline to have showing there, or something that comments ironically right. on what's happening. I mean, I've just, <clears throat> there's a book, the next book that I worked on that's coming out is coming out for Holocaust Memorial Day. 
Uh, oh. Sophie knows about this one, a book called The Thirteenth Child by a man called Mark de Meza. He found that five members of his family died in Amsterdam in the Holocaust, or rather were transported from Amsterdam and died in the Nazi camps. And I edited the book and we did a lot of back and forth about how much liberty can you take because a lot of this stuff is historically documented. Record, yes. Yeah, it's on public record. He invented a fictitious family to stand in symbolically for a lot of people who died. And because he didn't know all the details about his own family anyway. So he had to make stuff up. He, he was already inventing fictional characters. So at that point, you go, so what are you allowed to fictionalise and what aren't you? And he has changed at about two points. So we had some disagreement over this. It's changed a few points of that actually are on the historical record of when the Dutch resistance assassinated a particular Nazi figure. And in the end, there was a lot of the resistance killed quite a few Nazis. You can say in the end, it doesn't actually matter if it makes the story work better, because he's put very detailed notes at the end of the book that mm -hmm. chronicle methodically the absolute reality of what really did happen. But to make the story work, there are a few points where he's he's changed things. And some people would say, well, that's you're falsifying history there. That's not right. But he's admitting that he's falsified history to make to tell the story. And he's created a story where he's got a fictional family and each of the five mm -hmm. members of the family represent some different part of the experience of Jewish people mm -hmm. in that situation. So to make the story work, he has changed the details here and there. But it's still... I think the important point is it feels authentic. There is nothing that happens that didn't happen in some very similar way to someone at some point. Yeah. There's nothing that happens that couldn't have happened. And so I think essentially you're telling the truth in a, a bigger way. And in that case, I think it's acceptable to do so when you acknowledge, and he has done, there's about 20 pages of notes at the end of the book that set out exactly what did happen, who died when, who was sent mm -hmm. where, and all the rest of it. I think one of the things I'm going to have to apologize for in my end notes is that in order for the plot to work, I have to I keep having my Toyota Starlet break down because there's various places where if I had a car, it wouldn't work. And in fact, my Toyota Starlet never broke down. It was like the world's most dependable car. And I'm going to have to deeply apologize at the end going, I'm so sorry to defame my Toyota Starlet and having it break down when in fact it was a very dependable car. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up here. We have had a lot of great discussion about uh, turning a messy draft into a publishable book. What final things do we want to say on this topic? I think editing makes a good book great and it's essential and people shouldn't see it as something they do at the end of writing a draft, um, but take it take it as seriously as write, uh, as as getting that first draft down. Do you think that most books end up doing a freelance editor and a publisher edit? Or do you think yes. that most people, I you think, think that- I think, I, have, I, I think they I do. I mean, James, yes. I'm sure has never done that. James, you force everyone you possibly can find to read your novels. <laughs> and you, you get as many notes as you can from friends and family and acquaintances as you can. You do not, I assume, yeah. pay anybody to edit your novels. The closest I've come to that is having you look at my stuff because that is something that is a service that you provide for pay, but you kindly did it for me for free. Yeah, but then you obviously have then dealt with actual editors. Although it sounds like it sounds like you were heavily edited on 
Order of the Outfish, and then somewhat more likely edited on Dare to Noah and Private the Tornado. Well, on Order of Oddfish, I resist. Actually, I took edits more readily with my last two books than with Order of Oddfish. Oddfish, I fought everything. I've talked about this in the podcast before. I fought yeah. everything every step of the way. Um, I mean, I did take some edits from them, but the, the original idea was like, oh, we're going to cut this in half. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, so like, I, I, I think I've become much better, much less ornery as somebody to be edited. However, I think there is like there's some stuff that I won't back down on, and I think there, as a writer, you should have some stuff that you're not going to back down on, um, and some stuff that's like a couple things in like Dare to Know or Bride of the Tornado. People have said, "Oh, that's my favorite part of the book." I've had to say that's the part that my editor wanted to take out. Yeah. Sometimes you have to trust your gut, and even though like everything is telling you, like like you feel like, "Oh, who who do you think you are that you want to keep this in?" Your editor is telling you to take it out. You should you should take it out you should you should be a team player sometimes it's true but sometimes it's not and it's a judgment call yeah should mention at this point briefly that i have edited one of james's stories and i'd wonder how he thought about (laughs) i edited a story of james called advent that appeared in a book called improbable botany did you have any problems with that james no i didn't we did a great (laughs) job i mean you helped it out a lot okay any final thoughts before we say our goodbyes can we uh, do a bit about mentioning what we've got yes. coming up. Oh, yes. Let's go and do some plugs. What What do you guys have coming up? Yeah, what we're doing is at the Bournemouth Writing Festival, which is in its second year now on the 27th of April in Bournemouth on the south coast of England. Sophie and myself are doing a presentation, which is in some way similar to this podcast, about organising chaos. We're going to be talking about how to get that messy first draft of a book into a publishable final book. And... We'll try and not repeat everything we said here. We'll think of a lot of new stuff to say. We'll, we're asking people to pay to come and see us, so it'll have to be really together. We'll know what we're doing, won't we, Sophie? Yes. We will. I'm glad you we were will. able to workshop it here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. And on top of that, I'm also doing another event on the same day with Brian Sibley, who is a legend that no one's ever heard of. He co-wrote the BBC's famous 13-part adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow, that was great. He's adapted so many things for BBC Radio. He wrote the Shadowlands book about C.S. Lewis. Oh, did he? He's adapted Gormenghast twice for the radio. I love Gormenghast. So, yeah, we're just looking forward to having a really great conversation with him. We are going to be specifically talking about the art of adaptation, uh, which I think has become relevant all over again in the era of podcasts, where you're now getting a lot of fictional, dramatic podcasts. And a lot of people looking to get into doing that. So it should be an interesting conversation. And if I could just plug um, Souls, the book that we've been mentioning, um, it was our first release for Cadence, um, Souls um, by Sue Barrow. It's a great book. Great. <laughs> but I would say that. All right. Well, that's fantastic. And do you, what's, do you guys have a second release coming up? We've got things in the pipeline at the moment. But yeah, it's been we've had we've had we've had to um, rethink our our original plans. Okay. Oh, if I could just also mention again the book I mentioned a little while ago, uh, the next book I have coming out that I edited, The Thirteenth Child, by Mark De Meza, and that's coming out on the twenty fourth of January to coincide with Holocaust Memorial Day. All right. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. We will. Thank you. Uh, you guys are always great guests. All right. We will go ahead and wrap things up great. there.
Should we, uh, James, do you want to wish people your normal uh, going away wish? Go and sin no more. That one. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out on both sides of the pond. We will see you guys soon. Thank you. It's, it's been great Bye. to be here. Yeah. yeah. Thank so you. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.